Hey everybody, my name's Don, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm just real grateful to be here. Kind of like I think Mert said today, I'm grateful to be anywhere uh, above ground. And I'm real grateful to the host committee for inviting me down. And um, didn't realize it was going to be quite this uncomfortable to give this talk. You know, a fella gets away from home. Uh, I don't hurt a little thing, make hurt a thing, make things a little funnier maybe than they actually were or something like that. And uh, I've got my wife sitting right over here. I've got about 30 or 40 people from Louisville, including my primary sponsor back there. <laughs> so um, I, I expect that I better keep it straight or something like that card thing Glenn's happened, talking about might happen. Um, let me tell you a little bit about myself so that you won't have to try to count these things up while I'm talking. I used to try to do that. One time I counted up some fellows 170 odd years old. Uh, <coughs> you know, one of the things I'm going to tell you is that I'm a lawyer, and along those lines, I was going to leave the, the stories all to, to Glenn and Tom on this, but um, right along those lines, this lawyer died, and believe it or not, went to heaven. <laughs> And he got up there, and St. Peter greeted him, and you never saw such a to-do in your life. They had the angel band out there, everything carrying on. I mean, it was just a great, big welcome. And the lawyer said, well, I, I know it's probably unusual that you get a lawyer up here, but I didn't expect anything like that. And St. Peter said, well, we, uh, we do occasionally get a lawyer, so no, it's not that you're a lawyer, but it's so uncommon for us to have anybody who lived on earth for 337 years before they died. And the lawyer said, what are you talking about? I, I, I was only 67 when I died. And St. Peter looked through his records and said, oh crap, I was looking at your billing records. <laughs> but, <coughs> but at any rate... The most important thing I want to tell you is that by the grace of God and this fellowship, um, my dry date is April 9th, 1981. Uh, I'm 47 years old. I was 37 when I got when I got sober. I'm a lawyer practicing in Louisville, Kentucky, again. And the reason I say again is I'm probably going to tell you in a little bit that the Commonwealth of Kentucky requested that I refrain from that activity for a while. <laughs> I'm married to this beautiful lady sitting over on my left, and we've been married since this last December the 26th. My marital history uh, is worse than most alcoholics. Uh, Mert and I are running neck and neck if I counted correctly today. But I, I'm not going to give a blow-by-blow blow for mine because the first place I don't remember a whole lot of it, and the second place I want to be uh, down from here before 11 o'clock tonight. So I, I'm not going to give a blow-by-blow. Blow, but. I'm not trying to hide anything from you. My marital history has been, has been bad. And those are, are some little statistics about me. And the big book says that, um, tells me that when I talk, I need to share in a general way what I used to be like and what happened and what I'm like now. And that's what I want to do with you folks tonight. Um, my body grew up on a farm in southwest Kentucky, um, as far as it ever did. And before I got sober, I, I, I sincerely believed that there were all sorts of remarkable things about my childhood. For instance, I could, uh, I could tell you in great depth and with great feeling, actually cry, about the way I had used my sterling intellect and my iron will to pull myself up from the bootstraps from abject poverty to the staggering heights that I had reached. And I hadn't been sober 30 days before I realized that that was all a bunch of crap. In the first place, we weren't poor. 
We were middle-class farming people who had everything we needed and really most of the things that we wanted. And in the second place, my heights were a whole lot more staggering than they were high. I was one of those deals where it was a, I was a legend in my own mind. And, um, and lo- lo- looking back on it now, I, I believe the only remarkable thing about my childhood is the way I felt. Um, I don't know whether I was an alcoholic before I started drinking or not, and believe it or not, I don't care. If somebody had a file on me and could tell me everything about Don Major's alcoholism across the street, I wouldn't walk over there. And I used to be obsessed with that because I had that insane idea that if somehow I could find out what was wrong with me, it would magically no longer be wrong. But I realize now that I don't even really need to know what's wrong with me except enough to know what the solution is, and then I need to do it, and I don't even need to understand the solution. I just need to do it. But at any rate, the feelings have been there as far far back as I can remember. I was always an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, and I never felt like I was in the right place at the right time with the right stuff. Um, I can remember about the time I started grade school. Um, on one level, I was thinking that it was already obvious that a little fellow as magnificent as I was ought to have been born into great wealth and power, so there'd been some sort of mistake somewhere. And then at another level, down deep inside, at the same instant I was thinking that, I remember knowing, yeah, boy, you were born into the wrong family, all right, because there's no way in this world that a completely worthless stack of dung like you belongs in this family of warm, loving people the way your family is. I never was able to stop and be still and kind of say to myself down inside, hey, Don, how you doing? And get any answer back except something like, don't be asking that because you can't stand to look at it and for God's sake, boy, you keep moving. You keep your cute and smart act going and if that flops, then you create a negative disturbance. But you do whatever you have to do to keep anybody from drawing a bead on you and seeing what's inside you. Because if somebody else sees, then you may have to look at it, and then it'll be like the earth opening up and swallowing you up. You won't be able to stand it, so you keep running. And that's the way I stayed comfortable enough that I could just barely stand it until I got drunk the first time. Uh, My original sponsor in this program, and after I'd been reading it for several years, the big book began to tell me that um, this incurable, progressive, and fatal disease I've got made me sick spiritually, made me sick emotionally and mentally and physically. But it didn't start out as that. What it started out as, at least in me, is a disorder of my ego that makes it impossible for me to be comfortable inside myself without something from outside myself to fill up that hole in the belly that this disorder of my ego, my self-centeredness, my selfishness, creates. Um, Connected with that, as far back as I can remember, I always sort of thought that my intellectual ancestors had created God to keep your intellectual ancestors in line. I I couldn't imagine there being a higher power that held sway over my life and my little brain on a daily basis. Uh, I, I don't ever remember describing myself as an atheist. I had all sorts of intellectual theories about creation, but it was just absolutely unacceptable to me that anything would hold sway over my brain on a daily basis. As a result of that, I was completely unteachable and I was completely without humility. Now, I didn't know I was unteachable. If you'd suggested I was unteachable, I would let you know real quickly that I could learn anything as quickly as anybody you ever saw. Thank you. If you'd said anything about humility, I probably would have looked at you with as close to a blank stare as I ever allowed myself to have in those days because to the extremely limited extent that I ever thought about humility and gratitude and things of that nature until I got sober, 
I sort of vaguely assumed they were character defects. They, for, they were for those weak-willed defeatists who just sort of drifted around on the wind and didn't grab life by the horns and by God make things happen. I'd been exposed to this recovery program for two and a half years before I began to see at all how self-will is a character defect because all of my life I thought that a strong self-will was the greatest asset that I had. The reason I believe now that I was completely unteachable and completely without humility is that for those first 37 years of my life, I never once voluntarily followed a suggestion that anybody made about how to run my life unless my little old brain understood that suggestion, agreed with it, and thought it would work. I didn't even realize what I'd done, but I'd given my brain the ultimate veto power in the universe on how to run my life. I guess when I think about it, that's a real good definition of self-will run right. And given the disease that I've got, I was under death sentence until a loving God that I hadn't even asked for it gave me the first little bit of willingness to let my brain veto something and be able to turn around to my brain and say, yeah, I know you don't understand that. I know you don't agree with it. I know you don't think it'll work. But, partner, you and I have just damn near killed one another. We've got to try something else. Uh, tell you one other thing about the way I was uh, as a kid. I always wanted to be an alcoholic. Um, I didn't know that an alcoholic was the name of what I wanted to be. And I didn't know that I wanted to be an alcoholic until I'd been sober about a year, and then I figured it out. You see, on that farm where I grew up, there were all sorts of really hard-working, decent, responsible men who lived around there that owned a little land of their own or farmed somebody else's land. Those old boys would own these old pickup trucks that were 10 or 15 years old, and they didn't know a damn nickel on them. They were all beat up and stuff. And <clears throat> these guys would be married to these old gals that wear these flower sack-looking dresses, and the old gals didn't look too flashy at all. And maybe they'd have three or four or five little snotty-nosed kids and these guys would get up every morning of their life and eat breakfast and kiss that drab-looking woman goodbye and get in that paid-for pickup truck and go out and dig in that ground and come back at supper time, eat supper, kiss that woman, go to sleep, get up the next morning and do the same damn thing over again. <laughs> and then maybe on Sunday they'd get up and they'd pack that woman and those kids in that pickup truck and they'd go up the road to Julian Baptist Church or down the road to Locust Grove Baptist Church and then on Sunday afternoon they might do something like go visit. And as far back as I can remember, and I'm not exaggerating this, I can literally remember as a, a taunt the physical reaction of terror that I had of thinking that I might grow up to be anything like those fine, decent men. It made my palms sweat, my bowels get loose, and my knees shake. It terrified me. Now, I've got a brother that's 12 or 13 years older than I. <clears throat> and about six or seven miles from the farm, there was a county line, a little old spot called Gracie, where it was wet and they had the beer joints. And by the time I was five or six, I started to go over there with my brother, and I'd drink big oranges and eat pickled eggs while he drank beer. And, uh, and I did a lot of observing. First thing I observed was all those big flashy cars in the parking lot. Of course, they couldn't pay for them, but that didn't make any difference. And over the, over the last several decades, I've proved conclusively that having flashy cars, that, uh, not being able to pay for them doesn't make any difference to me. Um, but I like those, and then I went in, and those guys... They'd be sitting at the bar, you know, and they could sit at a bar cool. They'd do things like turn the ring around, turn that beer bottle around, tap on it a little bit, and just look cool. And then they'd flip a dime or a quarter to that barmaid. Hell, she didn't have to ask what they wanted to hear. She'd hot-footed around that jukebox and play Hank Williams, Kitty Wells. She knew just exactly what to play. 
And then you'd look over in the booth, and you'd see one of them over there, and he'd have his arm draped around some old gal that looked a hell of a lot better than them old gals in those flower sack dresses. And, and he'd be, you know, he'd be talking to her, and he didn't care whether he was married to somebody else or whether she was or not. Didn't care at all. And folks, every one of those guys was about that far from being rich and famous. I'd sit and listen, and every one of them had a hell of a big deal that was just about to pop. And you didn't mess with any of them, because I'd listen, and most of them had nearly had to whip some son bitch on the way to the beer joint. And if he'd said another word, by God, they would have. And then after they'd drink a little while long, he'd get thinking maybe they'd go back with him any damn house. And I took one look at all of that, and I fell in love. I fell absolutely in love when I saw my first concentrated do- doses of dishonesty, of unbridled ego, of self-will run right. I said, yes, I want to be just like them. And I made it. I just didn't know. I just didn't know what it was I wanted to be. Uh, I took all that discomfort that I had, and, and when I was 12 or 13, I got drunk the first time, and, and that... Um, First night that I got drunk, I, I threw up, I blacked out, I passed out, got in a lot of trouble, and I woke up the next morning, I had a terrible hangover. And I remember walking the floor in my parents' old farmhouse gnawing on my hand, and I'd remember something else, go dry heave off the porch, and I'd think, those Baptists are right, this stuff is terrible, I'll never do it again. And it's less than a week before I got drunk the second time. Because, you see, before any of those bad things happened, something else happened. When I got enough of that booze in me that it radiated all the way out the ends of my fingers, tips of my toes, my face got all hot and flushed and started tingling up around my mouth, hole in my belly quit hurt. For the very first time in my life, I was able to not run and feel comfortable enough inside myself that I could stand it. I was able to sort of say to myself down inside, Hey, Don, how you doing? And instead of that answer that I'd always gotten all my life, the answer I got was, everything is lovely. You're okay. You're in the right place at the right time with the right stuff. You're not too good. You're not too bad. You're not too smart. You're not too dumb. You are just okay, and you don't have to run. First step of our recovery program talks about being powerless over alcohol, and I, I believe in looking back on it that that first drunk for me completely defined my powerlessness over alcohol because since it was the only thing in this world I'd ever found that made me feel good enough inside that I could stand it without running, the bottom line was simply this. There wasn't any other game in town, and it didn't matter how high progression took the cost of that relief. And even in the years after the relief wasn't even there, when the only thing that was really there was oblivion, there was the memory of that relief. And it was still the only real relief I'd ever had of the way I felt inside, of that discomfort caused by my ego disorder. And, and until a quarter of a century later, when a loving God that I hadn't even asked brought me to you people, and you people took me by the hand and led me through these 12 steps that I believe with all my heart are the only program of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And those 12 steps led me back to that loving God. And the combination of those things began one day at a time dependent not upon how I am, but on what I do toward maintaining my spiritual condition, began to fill up that same hole in my belly that I'd fought with all and run from all my life. I didn't have any choice. I was powerless and I had to go back. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about, uh, about drinking tonight. I, I've, got, um, I, I've got a drinking story. Um, 
Some folks have characterized it as a horror story. Um, I don't know. I don't remember enough of it to really say. But um, I really don't spend a lot of time on it. But I never looked back when I started drinking. Um, there was never any hiding of my drinking. There was never any curtailing my drinking for people. Um, you either accepted the way I drank and everything about me, or you got the hell out of my life. I really didn't have people in my life. I had positions. And I usually had two or three interviewed for your position anyway, and if you didn't like the way it was going, you could just move right on, and I didn't miss a lick. I'd just move somebody else into your position, whether it was girlfriend, wife, best friend, business partner, what. I had somebody ready to step into that position, and I'd go right on. Um, during that 25 years, from the time I first got drunk until the time I got sober at 37, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I went to bed drunk more than 80% of the time. Um, Went to Louisville from the farm when I was 16. I was an early admission student into college. School was always easy for me, and that was part of my cute and smart act. And um, I was already drinking very, very alcoholically. I, I, I began drinking alcoholically the week that I started drinking. Um, I know now. And incidentally, one thing, Mert mentioned the psychiatrist today. I abused my first psychiatrist when I was 17. Um, I don't know how many I abused over the years, but, but I got a hold of my first one when I was 17. And I can remember that man suggesting to me that maybe my problem was alcoholism. And I can remember thinking, well, you idiot, I've known that for a couple of years. And telling him, oh, no, it's not that. You don't understand my problems are so much deeper than that. You don't know how special I am. You don't know how I see things so much more clearly than other people. My God, I feel them so much more acutely. And you don't know a thing about this ocean of compassion and this creativity that I've got inside me. My God, doctor, my soul's just too big for my body. I, I just drink on account of that. And then I'd get to believing that. I'd get to thinking my drinking was kind of like hemophilia to the czars of Russia. You know, it was just a price that I had to pay for my specialness. But at any rate, uh, when Mert was talking today, a, a statement that I hadn't thought of in years came to, to mind. Uh, the psychiatrists in general are so well-intentioned and so well-educated, and they try so hard, but I sincerely believe that taking an alcoholic to a psychiatrist is just exactly like taking an, a jellyfish to an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> there ain't nothing in us for those... There's nothing in us those folks to work on, and I have often just mused sort of idly because we're never going to know. We're never going to know this. But I don't think if a practicing alcoholic were to ever tell a psychiatrist the truth that they could help even then. But we'll never know because I don't think one of us has ever told them the truth. Um, I, I worked my way through undergraduate law school and graduated in 1968, and that was the year that my daughter was born. I started practicing law in Louisville in 1968, and I practiced with a good deal of material success from 1968 to 1978. I was almost exclusively a criminal defense lawyer, and a law firm of seven or eight lawyers built up around this other fellow and myself, and we built a three-story office building a block from the Hall of Justice there in Louisville, and I won a lot of cases and made a lot of money. I got a lot of publicity, and I got more and more miserable all the time. And I'm real grateful for those 10 years, and the reason that I'm grateful for them is that I am so hard-headed that had it not been for those 10 years when I got to have pretty well an orgy of material things and success, I don't think I could ever have been convinced that there wasn't some combination, some combination of money, power, booze, dope, sex, notoriety, than things that I could get if I could get it just right, that I'd be all right, that I'd feel okay inside. And I'm real grateful that I was able to have those years to look back on and say, now, Don, 
and remember all the times when I'm thinking, if I can just get that, if I can just get that now, that'll get it right, and I'll be okay. I'll be okay and rest and slide a little bit. And either I'd get that or I wouldn't, but either way, it wouldn't be okay. And I, I think I, that allowed me to know the truth when you folks finally told me, hey, Don, if you let your comfort depend on any person, place, thing, or situation, you're going to be uncomfortable. When you first told me that, I thought I knew exactly what you meant. I thought what you meant was that if I let my comfort depend on something, it might not work out the way I wanted to, and then I would be uncomfortable. But I found out that's not what you meant. If I let my comfort depend on it, there's no way it can turn out for me to be comfortable because I've tried to rest my comfort on something other than God in these 12 steps. And there's nothing in this world that will support my comfort except God in the 12 steps. If I let my comfort depend on my darling wife over here, she can do the best things on earth, and I will wind up being uncomfortable, not because she did anything wrong, but because I let my comfort repose in the wrong place. And I'm grateful that, that I had those years for that. used a lot of drugs other than alcohol between 68 and 78, but I don't think they had a lot to do with my story. Um, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I don't have two diseases. Hell, if I've got two diseases, I've got a hundred. Because anything that I thought I could possibly use or abuse to fill up that hole in my belly and make me feel good enough to extend it, I used and abused. And uh, February 10th, 1978, uh, other than the fact that I wound up having a wreck, was an ordinary day. I spent the afternoon snorting cocaine, drinking scotch with a judge. It was Friday afternoon. Uh, and I was remarried to my daughter's mama. Does that tell you something? You know, nobody but alcoholics and dope fiends and people that so well and sick that can't crawl do that, and we do it all the time. Hell, we, we not only have trouble with the definition of marriage, we have just as much trouble with the definition of divorce. We like to keep it kind of vague, you know. But at any rate, I, I, I started calling around to get somebody to go with me on this trip because I, I need to get out of town for a long weekend. been working too hard. And, and I got a hold of a young lady that I've been seeing some of, and I went... Got her, and I took some Quaaludes and got two jugs of vodka for the trip, had a new Corvette. And um, back in those days, I had to get the vodka, I think, because I thought they'd write you a citation if they caught you traveling in 1978 without two bottles of vodka. And, and I headed down to West Kentucky, going to go down and see my daddy. And uh, got on CB radio and got hold of a truck driver that had some of those little yellow dioxin speed beans, and he wanted some vodka. So we pulled over, and I gave him a jug of vodka, and he gave me a handful of dioxin. I made it about 60 miles on further down the road, close to the Tennessee line. Went off the road 130 miles an hour and did a lot of bad things to my body. I broke both legs, crushed both knees, lost the main artery in one lower leg, and had to do a bypass in the upper leg, took out a vein, grafted in to replace the artery. Uh, it separated my pelvis and severed my urethra so that I didn't have a urinary function for over a year. Um, I didn't go, and first year after the wreck, I, I uh, was in the hospital more than half that year, had half dozen major surgeries. And the doctors told me that, uh, that, wasn't, that they didn't believe that I would ever walk without at least braces and a cane or two. And they didn't know whether they'd be able to find a surgeon that was willing to try to put my urethra back together so that I would have a urinary function. Just for the record, and through no fault of mine, because I didn't follow those directions any better than I've ever followed any directions in my life. Uh, I can walk, I can run, I can play tennis without braces or a cane, and about a year after the wreck, we found a, a surgeon that did successfully fix my plumbing. But I didn't know that would happen. I didn't, <laughs> and, and I didn't go broke the first year after the wreck, because being senior founding partner in the firm, money kept on rolling in. I just, well, you know, it got real uncomfortable because my daughter's mother was real narrow-minded about the circumstances of that wreck. 
she 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 didn't like that. And and I found out that I was a lot more comfortable between surgeries if I'd have them take me to that lady's house that had been with me had, when I had the wreck, rather than to my daughter's mama's house. And and um, I wound up with her, well, with that lady, and wound up marrying her. Um, but I would lay in the hospital that first year and cast all over my tubes running in, carrying all sorts of fluids in and out of my body, and I would have my, my I would already have conned the staff wherever I was, so, you know, that's the first thing an alcoholic has got to do is put the con on the people in charge wherever they go because, you know, you're going to need it. Time's going to come when you've got to have those brownie points in the bank because you're going to need it because you're going to mess up. And uh, I would have my friends bring booze in, and I, I would lay there in that condition and drink the booze, and I would hold it up and say things like this. I'd say, boys, this is the only mistress to whom I've ever been faithful and the only one that's ever been faithful to me. And just by God, because the price gets a little high, we can't abandon her. And I'd drink it down. And then I'd talk about that that any spanless SOB could lay down the drink when the going got a little rough. That it took a damn man to realize that when you dance, you got to pay the piper, and the damn piper's at the door. I'm just going to pay the son of a bitch and keep on dancing, boys. <laughs> Y'all do whatever you want to about it. And that is real insanity. See, I wasn't trying to... I didn't even make any attempt to blame the condition I was in on anything but the booze. But it's also real powerlessness because, see, I was the same place I was after that first drunk. There wasn't any place in this universe that I'd found anything that made me comfortable enough inside that I could stand it without running. So it simply really didn't matter that the price had gotten that high. Now, about a year after um, that wreck... I made what I call my first trip to the asylum, and uh, I don't use the word asylum. It'd be funny, Big Book uses that word. And a lot of the places I was in were called psychiatric hospitals. A lot of them were called treatment centers. I've been in on the, the crazy side and had them want to move me to the substance abuse side, and I'd tell them and mean it, oh, no, 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 I'm in the right place. Tell them about the same thing I did shrink when I was 17 about my magnificence and the fact that with all that... A burden on me, you know, no bless oblige or whatever that, that that I just had to drink. Sometimes they'd have me on the substance abuse side, and they'd think maybe the thing to do with me was wheel me across the hall and plug me into the wall. And I'd tell them, no, if, if we can just get this stuff out of my system one more time, hell, I'll be all right. You, you know, I'm surely I've got sense enough not to pick it up again after going through what you've just seen me go through, and that'd mean all that. But anyway, I got to that first one somewhere around the first of the year, 79, and by that time it took me three or four days to to shake out and, and get through the withdrawal from ethyl alcohol. And those of you who have progressed far enough, I don't have to explain that. And those of you who have not progressed that far, not a bit need me trying to explain it. With all the major surgeries I've had, with withdrawing from hard needle, from needle hard narcotics habits, I've never had anything hurt me, anything get in the category with hurting me as much as each one of the last, say, 200 times that I had come off ethyl alcohol hurt me. But at any rate, they got me able to sit up in a chair and go to an AA meeting. Got me in the meeting. I still had my catheter bag, my super pubic catheter rammed into my belly. Had my braces on and was on, cr and was on crutches. And they got me sitting up there in the red hideworks. Got step three. Made the decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of God, as we understood him. Well, I climbed up on my crutches and said as loud as I could, Do you mean to tell me there are people in this world who believe such shit? And I went and made telephone calls to get somebody to come get me away from those religious fanatics before they somehow polluted my pristine intellect. <laughs> now, I wound up getting sober about two and a half years after that, April, April the 9th, 1981. Um, yeah, and during that two and a half years, a lot of things happened. And I, I'm, one thing, I'm not going to belabor them because I don't remember a lot of them. Uh, 
But some of the things that I do know that happened are that uh, I uh, went back to the asylum 17 more times, as best I've ever been able to remember. When I reapplied for admission to the bar, they had some terrible questions on that thing. Like, have you ever been in a mental institution, and have you ever been the defendant in a legal action? And, of course, the only thing I could put to questions like that was see attached. And, and the, then on the attachment, I had to put what we lawyers call a caveat. Now, what a caveat is, it's saying, I have just put all this together to try to convince you that it's absolute truth, but I'm not taking any responsibility for it, and you can't blame me if it's wrong. So I had to put a caveat on there saying, you know, I really am not trying to mislead you if your investigation shows up more asylums or more legal things. I just don't know it. I'm not trying to mislead you. Another thing that happened was that I last laid eyes on my daughter in January of 1980. It turned out I wasn't going to see her for over three years in February of 1983. Um, uh, I, I became addicted. I'm real grateful for that because that caused the boys to kick me out of the law firm that I'd founded, and I don't think they would ever have done that um, until I died, and I proved I couldn't get sober in my case as long as I had a wristwatch. I certainly wasn't going to get sober as long as I had a law firm. Uh, the state of Kentucky removed my license. The Internal Revenue took my part of the office building investments, things like that. The mortgage companies took the big homes I kept leaving wives in as I kept moving further out uh, to the suburbs. And the banks took the expensive automobiles and the, the Rolex watches and the diamond rings and the money and everything all gone. Uh, when all the money was gone, I went down and and stole my father's Social Security money, which was all he had to keep on drinking. I badly, emotionally abused my much older, badly crippled sister in order to keep on drinking. Um, I used and used up everything and everybody in my life. The last couple of years that I drank and drugged, I assumed that I would die of alcoholism. And there are a lot of folks here from Louisville, and some of them knew me during those days, and I think they'd confirm that just about everybody that knew me during that period of time assumed that I would die of alcoholism and drug addiction. I had taken step one largely. Uh, I didn't pick up the first one thinking I might get away with it. I knew I wouldn't get away with it. I knew something real bad would happen and I might die. But the pain was so great and that will to live was so weak that I had to just keep on doing it, and I did. By the time I hit asylum number 17, everything and everybody was gone. No law license, no home, no car, nothing. My teeth were rotting out of my head. My body was still broken, broken up from the surgery. There wasn't a human being on earth that ought to have accepted a collect telephone call from me. I was deep into what I call the pop-off vodka slash Listerine stage of drinking. And believe me, I've drunk a barrel of both of them. And I usually give a little tip if there's somebody around that's not done drinking yet. I don't want to kill anybody because I understand Listerine can really hurt or kill some people. But in my case, even though the Listerine cost a little more than the pop-off, the main thing was it was available seven days a week, 24 hours a day, no more of that four o'clock in the morning shit. You know, no more waking up and dying those thousand deaths and wondering whether you can get away with throwing a brick through a liquor store window, just go down to the all-night market and get that jug of Listerine back behind it and whammo you well. The next thing is it tastes a little better than old pop-off, if you really think about it. <laughs> and it always gets me just as drunk, I don't think made me quite as sick. But, um, but at any rate, I, I was deep into that. And I, I hit a place outside of Nashville, Tennessee, called Cumberland Heights. And there was a fellow named Harold G. that was business director there. And he told me later that he only let me in because he knew, he knew he'd get stiff for the fee. Uh, he only let me in because he didn't think I'd live another week if he left me on the street. Got in there and stayed a month, and um, I didn't stay straight. Some people in there had some dope, and I took it. I was never straight 30 days in my life until the 30 days following April 9, 1981. I uh, got out, and um, my roommate's family 
there in Cumberland Heights, was involved in AA there in Nashville, and they asked me if I wanted to come stay with them a few days, out of pity, and I went and lived with them on charity for 11 months. And the first five or six months, I, I didn't get sober on up until the spring of 81, but I got better. Uh, I went to a lot of meetings down there. Uh, I got to where I could go two or three weeks without getting messed up on something. And how I really know I got better is they didn't put me back in the asylum but one time. And at the rate I'd been going, going to the asylum once every six months was just the same as well. But at any rate, I got on drunk in late March of, of 1981. And uh, come April the 8th in 1981, I, I wound up sitting on a, a bed in the Hall of Fame Motor Inn down in Nashville. And I was in a brownout, which uh, is a... As far as I know, I invented that term, but, but, but it, descri it describes the condition in which even if you figure in the last 10 years, I figure I've spent 5 to 10% of my adult life. And that is where I really was in a blackout, except there flashes of light where I remember things. You know, just little snatches of things like some blue lights flashing, glass breaking, women screaming, children crying. And during this flashlight, there was a blonde-headed woman in my room. And I was explaining to her that there were two kinds of men, basically. There were men who were psychologically pimps and men who were psychologically tricks. And she was to understand that she was messing with Don H. Major, who was 100% psychological pimp, and she was not to forget it. And the next flashlight, I was sitting on the edge of the bed with my head in my hands, and everything I'd had been stolen, she was gone. Now, I, I had been on the streets long enough that I knew pimps weren't supposed to get rolled. But I don't tell that for whatever sick humor is in it. Um, I tell it because the next instant was to, I began, I know now, to get a whole lot of gifts from a loving God that I had not asked for from him. And that first gift was that for the first time in my life I thought, this is not working. Now, you'd think I would have figured out by that time that it was not working, and I thought I had figured out that it wasn't working. I thought I had known for over 20 years that my drinking was not working, but I hadn't. What I'd been doing for over 20 years was thinking, if you don't quit, you're going to lose that. If you don't quit, they're going to put you there. If you don't quit, you're going to die. All those tens of thousands, if you don't quit, it's a gonna. But never once before had I thought, hey, boy, you're sitting on the edge of this bed, and you're as full of this stuff as you can get and you still can't stand the way you feel inside, so it's not working anymore. So I made some calls, I think, and the folks I was living with let me come out there and pass out. The lady, Francis, told me later that that night I, I immediately proceeded to fall down between the bed and the wall with one leg sticking out, and that every once in a while she'd walk in and touch the leg, and she already had her contingency plan about what to do when she touched it and it's colder than it ought to be. Um, but the next gift that I'd gotten was a will to live. And, and for you new folks, I didn't know that I was getting any of these gifts until months and sometimes years later when I look back. The way I felt when I was getting sober was like my butt was falling off. And I didn't have any more idea that this program would work for me than I had that it would work for a monkey. And one minute I was sure this program wouldn't work for me because of my specialness because I was so damn smart and my life was so complex and it was intertwined with so many lives and because I felt things so deeply and because I saw them so clearly and all that crap. And then the very next minute I'd be thinking this program wouldn't work for me. You know, somebody would tell me, one of you folks would share your story and I'd think, yeah, I know it works for you, but you don't know about those parts of me that are missing. You don't know that I've never been able to really love anything. You don't know that I've never been able to really accept any responsibility at all. You don't know that I've made such a mess in my life that there's nothing to get sober for, that I'll just need to be blown into by some of my criminal clients that I betrayed in those last years or I'll wind up in the penitentiary. So it won't work for me because I'm so bad. <laughs> 
but it didn't matter. See, I've got the only disease in the world that talks to me, and it has one objective. It's a psychopath. It doesn't care who it kills. It only has one objective, to increase its chances of getting a drink. And it doesn't care who it kills in the process, and it doesn't care how inconsistent the things it tells me back to back are. But at any rate, uh, the next gift that I got was a will to live that I hadn't had before. Uh, and the way God gave me that will to live was with humor. Because I can remember thinking as I was shaking out that last drunk, and I just shook it out at, at the house there, I can remember uh, thinking, what would people do with me if I didn't have the common decency to die? And I got to think about, you know, you, you tell somebody goodbye that's moving off to Europe or something, you tell them kind of an emotional goodbye, and then an hour later you run into them at the service station or the grocery store, and hell, you don't know what to say. You know, you're shuffling your feet and uncomfortable. And that seemed humorous to me. And, and incidentally, when I look back from 10 years sober, my idea that there was no humanly logical conclusion to where I was other than my death was not insanity. It was correct. Nothing made any human sense on April the 8th or 9th of 1981 except for me to die. Uh, the next gift that God gave me was the first little bit of teachability or humility I'd ever had in my life. And the 202 Club there in Nashville was a place where they knew me real, real well because during that five or six months I'd gone to a lot of meetings there. Uh, I had shot dope in the men's room. I had passed out at meetings. Uh, they had warned the people that they sponsored to stay away from me, that I was a loser, that I was going to die. About uh, 60 days before I got sober, I was walking through there, and a big old tall boy about 6'6", six, six, named Joe W., walked up to me and looked down and said, Major, I'm beginning to think, by God, you really are too intelligent for this program. And I swelled up inside like a little old banny rooster and thought, well, it's about time these people figured out who they're dealing with. <laughs> and he said, and that's a real shame, because we have never had anybody too dumb for this program, and we bury you assholes all the time. And that grabbed me like an icy hand inside my chest. I knew that man was telling the truth, and it was still stuck in my brain when I went back in there three or four days after my last drink as soon as I was able to drag. And thank God that the door to Alcoholics Anonymous swings both ways, because those people in 202 greeted me with the divinely perfect combination of loving open arms and an undercurrent of disgust. And I needed both. I needed both. And I went in and I said, hey, will you folks tell me again what I need to do if I want to live? And they said, we'll be glad to tell you again, Don, because it helps us. And they said, don't drink, don't take dope, and go to meetings. And by the grace of God, the first 60 days that I was sober, I went to over 150 meetings. Now my brain was yelling, Major, what are you doing in here with these damn religious fanatics in Nashville, Tennessee, for God's sake? Get your head out of the sand and get back to Louisville and be a man. Get a law license, get some money, get a pretty woman, get a Jaguar. My God, boy, be somebody. But for the first time, I was able to turn around my brain and say, No, I know that's what you think. I know you don't understand this. I know you don't think it'll work. But we've tried everything we can try, and I've got to try something else. And by the grace of God, I was able to keep on doing it. Then they told me if I wanted to live, I'd get a sponsor. And, I said, and my brain yelled the same thing. And I overruled my brain again, and I called Cherry Carpenter, who at that time I did not even like. Didn't even like Cherry. Cherry died about two and a half years ago. Uh, Cherry had sat around meetings and seemed like me. He'd kind of talk down to folks, you know, tell them who laid the rail about the program. But I knew he knew the program, and I think it was divinely inspired that I got to Cherry. And let me just throw in something that, that's real important to me. Cherry Carpenter is one of the most important people in my life. He remained one of my sponsors up until his death, even though I was gone from Nashville for the last several years of his life. 
I never rode in a car with Cherry Carpenter. I never shared a meal with Cherry Carpenter. And Cherry Carpenter never called me except to return a telephone call. Folks, when you start looking for a sponsor, you don't have to look for a best friend. You can have a best friend somewhere else. He explained to me, and I believe with all my heart, that the primary function of a sponsor is to be a guide through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. He explained to me that how it works says, here are the steps we took that are suggested as a program for recovery. He said, look through the first 164 pages of the big book, and you won't find anything else called a program for recovery. He said, Don, what that means to you is that you can be going to 10 meetings a week, sponsoring 30 people, talking at conventions all over the country, and working part-time in a treatment center, and if you are not actively working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, you ain't even in the program of recovery. that you're latching on to the fellowship and putting a band-aid on a terminal cancer. And that's the way I look at sponsors today primarily. Now my sponsor is here, that's here tonight is a sponsor in all ways, including one of my very, very close friends. So it doesn't mean that you're... And I didn't meant to say something about Bernie tonight. You know, when he first started sponsoring me, when I got back to Louisville in 1983, we took a trip to the fellowship by the sea up in uh, uh, South Carolina. And we played gin rummy all the way down on the bus. And I played with Bernie and didn't do too well. And then the word got back to me. He'd just been sponsoring me a month or two. We were just getting to know one another. The word got back to me through a mutual friend that Bernie had said, You know, I really ought to tell that damn boy that gambling's probably not the thing for him to do, but I need the money. <laughs> that actually happened. But at any rate, I think if I had not gotten a good sponsor within a week of my last drink, I'd die. And incidentally, of course, this wasn't one conversation. This was a series of conversations over weeks and months at 202. And then I asked them what else to do. And they said, read the big book. And I said, but I've read the big book three or four times. And they said, yeah, Don, we know you were quoting it around here when you were dying. I said, but you were reading it as a philosophy book. And if you want to live, you're going to understand that that is not a philosophy book. And there's nothing in this world that you can learn that will keep you sober for a heartbeat. This program of Alcoholics Anonymous is not a learning process, it's a doing process. And if you want to live, you're going to pick that book back up, and this time you're going to look at it as a simple instruction manual for your actions. And you're going to start at the front cover, reading line for line and only the black part, and not interpreting one damn thing. And if you want to live, when you get to a suggestion that you do something, you'll get up and go do it. And it's in a down in your case, on account of your almost boundless intellect and your experience, and, and your general uniqueness, it's inevitable that you're going to run into things in this book that obviously don't apply to you. And said, that's fine, just do those first, you'll need them more than anything. <laughs> and by the grace of God, I was able to overrule my intellect and go ahead and do that. I was able to hear them when they said that those 12 steps work on alcoholism just like penicillin works on infection. You don't have to know a thing about infection, you don't have to know a thing about penicillin, you just got to take the damn pills. On the other hand, you can go to the library and learn all there is to know about infection, all there is to know about penicillin, not take the pills, and you'll die. And I'm so grateful that it was put to me that way, that it's my actions that make a difference whether I live or die. And that hadn't a one of us ever died from what we was thinking. Not a one of us. We die from what we're doing. We live from what we're doing, I know now. Um, then they told me that if I want to live, I'd have to get down on my knees and ask the power greater than myself to get through the day without drinking and drugging in the mornings and get down on my knees at night and thank that power. Um, and I really squalled in. I said, you know, I can't do that because that second step's what's been killing me. See, for the time that I'd been in, been around, 
I thought you folks were telling me that if I was going to live, I had to somehow start thinking, feeling, and believing things that I simply did not think, feel, and believe. And I had sincerely tried to find the switches inside me to flip to make me think, feel, and believe that. You see, if I had to put my disease in a sentence, it would simply be this. My disease always has been and always will be, believing that what I think, feel, and believe is the ultimate reality, and that's got to get straightened out so I act right. And if I had to put my recovery in a sentence, it would be that if I'll act right, regardless of what I'm thinking, feeling, or believing, everything is going to be all right, and I'll probably wind up thinking, feeling, and believing a little better. So they told me that if I wanted to, well, they also told me, they said, first place, we don't know where you got this idea that you were supposed to think, feel, and believe something, because in the first place, you are way too sick to have any valid thoughts, feelings, or beliefs. Then the second place, your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs are your disease, and your disease is your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs, and there's not even any overlap. They're one and the same thing. And the third thing, whether you live or die is going to be determined solely by what you do. What you think, feel, or believe will have nothing to do with it. So you get down on your knees and say the words. It matters. It could matter less what you think. So I started acting as if in the miracle of the second step happened. I came to believe. Now, I've been sober about 60 days, and I was beginning to think, hey, you know, maybe there's something to this God stuff. You know, maybe, maybe, it, maybe it's going to work. And, and somewhere between 60 and 90 days, I went to Cherry, made an appointment with him, went out there, and I, I thought I was going to astound him, sort of like Jesus did in the temple when he was 12, you know, with my newfound spiritual erudition. And I started talking about the finer points of spirituality and the relationship with the third step and the eleventh step and that sort of thing. Cherry said, wait a minute, Doc, wait a minute, wait a minute, said Doc. Don't quote it. We know you can do that. Uh, paraphrase the third step. Tell me what it is. And I said, well, it's turning my life and will over to God. And he said, no, 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 no. It's making a decision to turn your will and life over to the care of God. And I said, well, Cherry, that's splitting hair. He said, Don, it's really difficult for me to get up on your intellectual level, but I'm going to try it. <laughs> Let, let's suppose that there are three frogs sitting on a log. One decides to jump in the pond. How many are left on the on the log. And I said, two. He said, no, you dumbass, three. You just decided. He hadn't gone anywhere. <laughs> and then he explained to me that I can stand here tonight and, and make an intellectual decision tell you folks, hey, I'm going to New York City in the morning. And I've made the decision, but I won't get out of Georgia unless I make a whole series of thought-out actions and planned actions to do it. And he said, Don, if you ever hear anybody wondering whether they've taken a third step or not, don't worry about it. They haven't. Because the third step is not a vague thing. It's described in the big book probably more specifically than any of the other 11 steps. And if a person hasn't gone in a room, preferably with another understanding person, and gotten on their knees and said words somewhat similar to those words on page 63 of the big book and intended at that time to be making a decision to turn their will and life over to the care of God, then they're on the third step. They may have thought about the third step a lot. They may have prayed about the third step a lot. They may have talked about the third step a lot. They hadn't done the third step the way the big book says do it. So I said, okay, and I did that. But I still knew where the complication was. See, turning Don Major's life and will over to God had to be something on the order of a Cecil B. DeMille movie with the trumpets and spreading the whole thing out, and God and I were going to walk up and down, and I was going to point out a few things, and he was going to say, gee, Don, I never thought of that. Yeah, we'll switch that. And, and then I'd have the whole God's will laid out, and I could go on automatic pilot. So I knew it had to be complicated. And I said, okay, now that I've made the decision to turn my life and will over, how do I do it? He said, that's just simple, Don. When you made that decision, you only decided to do two things. Number one is work the rest of the steps and use them in your life the rest of your life. Work one through nine and then live on ten through twelve for the rest of your life. And number two is as you go through life, you're going to try to do the next right thing instead of the next thing you want to do when they're in conflict. 
And he explained to me that if I would do those things, I wouldn't have to sit around meetings and wonder about things, turning things over to God, that God would make my life and will what he would have it be. And I spent 10 years trying to prove him wrong, and I haven't been able to. And then he told me that I'd never get a glimpse of God's will except for me in the instant. And that if I ever thought I knew God's will for somebody else to get the hell to a meeting, if I ever got to studying about God's will for me for next Tuesday to get the hell to a meeting because I was screwed up, that the only glimpse of God's will I'd ever get was what the next right thing for me to do was. But he also told me that if I would be still and if I would pray and if I would ask for it, that I'd get that, where to take that next stitch just exactly. If I wouldn't waste my time and energy peeping around trying to look at the pattern, see where God's gone, where he's been going, and all that sort of thing, when I do that, a stitch all over the board. But he was right. If I'll just leave the pattern up to God and take that next stitch, I invariably look back, and he's been weaving something far more beautiful than I could even have imagined. Uh, then as I started to leave church, I said, by the way, on the next page in this book, it says that the third step won't have much prominent effect unless it's followed at once by a fourth step. I said, if the book had meant that it was to be followed when your group thinks you're ready or when you think you can do it without getting drunk or when you see a burning bush and you know it's time to do a fourth step, it said that in the book, but it doesn't. It says third step won't have much effect unless it's followed once by a fourth step. So don't call me bitching about your third step evaporating if you haven't done a fourth step. I'm glad he did that. He took me by the hand and led me through that, and I did my fifth step with him. Then I blew right past six and seven, and I started working on eight and nine. And by the time I, did, I celebrated my token birthday in Nashville, and I had let go of ever getting my law license back, and that was reasonable for me to do that, and I had quit demanding of God that I ever in this life see my daughter again. I had, had been able enough to live and to get by, and I got to know more joy in Nashville, dead broke, never could find a job in Nashville, lived in a little old attic, no phone, no car, nothing, and happier than I'd ever been in my life, up there teeth rotting out and just happy as a pig in mud. <laughs> really was. In fact, some days things all rolling down, I'm driving big cars and answering telephones and pressure coming here and there, I get to think, man, that attic is all right, you know. Uh, but um, at, at any rate, I had, I had to let go of those things, and then doing steps eight and nine, about a year and a half sober, my law license got put back in order purely as a byproduct of doing steps eight and nine. I'm convinced that if I had made getting my law license back the objective, that I not only wouldn't have gotten it back, that I'd have died. And I came back to Louisville and started practicing law in January 1983. was terrified, by the way. was terrified that AA would be different in Louisville. They wouldn't be able to make it. But, it. but I did the right thing, by the grace of God. I got up there and I threw myself in the program, even though I was afraid, and hey, AA is about the same everywhere. And in February of 1983, I saw my daughter for the first time. In April of 1983, she moved in. Looked like she was moving in with me, but I don't really think she did. She moved in with my God and with these 12 steps and you people. You see, I destroyed my relationship with my daughter. I, Don Major, have no right to a relationship with my daughter. I, Don Major, have no right to a law license back. I've got one with my name on it. But as far as I'm concerned, the Supreme Court of Kentucky issued it to God, the 12 steps and you folks because I've had those things for me, and nobody could have made a bigger mess of them. In the years since I've been back, from, back in Louisville, uh, a lot of nice things have happened. Um, I began to talk at lots of AA meetings and talk at a convention soon after getting back and started sponsoring people, and I've sponsored up 35 people at one time, and I've talked at some conventions over the years, and you know, I've got people who say, gee, Don, you, you're doing so good, and, and Don, this, that, and other. And there were areas in my life that were just absolutely going to hell in a handcart. Primarily relationships with the opposite sex and finances. 
And those two things are the things that I worked the very hardest on for the first nine years of my sobriety. You see, I know now, I didn't know, I didn't know two years ago, but I know now that what I did in April 1981, I'd tried every way I knew to drink and I couldn't. And I tried every way I knew not to drink and I couldn't. And I did turn that over to God. And a day at a time, by the grace of God, I've never taken it back. But I jumped down in the trenches and started doing hand-to-hand combat with every other character defect I've got. And I did combat with prayer, the steps, talking to sponsors, talking to other people, with outside counseling when it seemed appropriate, with rigorous honesty. I did combat with the right tools. But what I was doing, I was grabbing hold of whatever character defect was making me uncomfortable at the moment. And I was saying, hey, God. I got him cornered. Get down here right now. We're going to get rid of this son of a bitch today. Because, you see, for the first nine years that I read and prayed the seven-step prayer, I thought that prayer said that I was asking God to remove all of my defects of character. And finally, after nine years of sobriety, I figured out that ain't what it says. It says, remove those defects of character that stand in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Folks, I don't know which ones they are. My most uncomfortable character defect may be just precisely what you, one of you folks need to see tonight to get you to a place that you need to be to. I don't know which ones are in the way of God and my fellows. I spent all those years trying to get God to remove whatever character defect was making my self-centered little butt uncomfortable. And nowhere in the book does it say that this is ever going to happen. And see, I also thought that I could do it. I hadn't accepted that the Father does the work, and the Father must do the work. I've got to do the footwork. But, you know, a doctor doesn't heal. A doctor creates an environment in which healing can take place and God heals. A farmer doesn't grow. A farmer creates an environment in which growth can take place and God grows. And I got an additional sponsor about a year and a half ago up in Cleveland, and, and that's where I got all that six and seven step stuff. You know, those folks have been sober a long time up there. I, I flew up there for the weekend. They had one old boy who used to drink with Dr. Bob. And it seemed like all, uh, seriously, and, and it seemed like that all they talked to me about was six and seven, six and seven. Don't fight the character defects. You can't demand that God remove this, and you can't heal yourself of any of the other character defects any more than you could heal yourself of drinking. God must do it. And I came back and I started doing that, and some beautiful things happened in my life. Uh, I had given up on opposite sex, or given up on a stable relationship with opposite sex. I hadn't got quite that sanctimonious, but I'd given up on a stable relationship. And um, there was a beautiful red-headed school teacher that my daughter had uh, had gone to school with her daughter, and I'd, I'd had a thing for her for years. And I thought, well, I'll just check and see if she's still around. And uh, I didn't try to do anything. I didn't have any objective. I just tried to do God's will step at the time, the next right thing. And, uh, you know, I can mess up this relationship with Karen. I can get drunk, too. But I'm going to have to do either one of them. I'm convinced of that because it's more beautiful than I could, than I could have imagined it being. Some things have gone not so well in the last couple of years. My daughter became my best friend. She got into Al-Anon, got a black belt in Al-Anon. We shared all sorts of things together. And and just closest, the envy of everybody in a relationship. About two years ago, she got pissed off at me. I still don't know why and doesn't even like me. And I had to go through letting go of that baby all over again. And I had to remember, hey, that ain't your baby. You destroyed your relationship with your daughter, and look at that beauty that God gave you back. You take what you got today, you do the next right thing, and you go right on, and you let her do what she needs to do, and I'm comfortable with that today. Uh, the most important thing in my sobriety to me today is not missing a morning or a night getting on my knees and asking God to get me through without drinking and drugging and, and thanking him at night. 
that is so important to me that if I were to say, I don't think I've missed a day in the last 10 years plus, and if I were to choose not to do that tonight and choose not to do that in the morning, I wouldn't really think I deserve, and I don't think I'd even expect a day of sobriety tomorrow. For me, I think I can have no spirituality if I'm not willing to proceed from those few seconds of humility and gratitude on my knees in the morning and at night. Um, some days I get to looking at my life today and I think, my God, Major, you are really no better. All this is going on and that's going on and you're not any better. And I get all confused. And then I got to remember what Jerry told me about that. He said, the only valid comparison that I can ever make as long as I live again is to compare today to the last day that I drank. When I did that, when I do that on any day, I usually come up with something like this. I haven't wet my britches today. Nobody is trying to put me back in the asylum today. Nobody is trying to put me in the penitentiary today. I haven't stolen anything today. I don't even remember having told any lies today. I've got a place to go to work. On the last day I was supposed to go to work, I went to work. Hey, I'm a hell of a lot better. I'm one hell of a lot better than I was. And when I can keep that in focus, I'm fine. And in closing, I apologize for getting wound up, but if any of y'all were done, you could have left. I'm going to leave when I was done. Uh, and in, in closing, I want to say that, that the last year and a half of my sobriety for me has been kind of a return to something that, that I had and I think I lost. And that is simply this. Anytime that I think there is any more to this whole deal of recovery and this whole deal of my life, other than these steps and doing the next right thing instead of the next thing I want to do. And, you know, usually the thing that I want to do is not motivated by greed, lust. It's usually fear. I'm usually afraid that if I do the right thing, I'll lose something I've got or I won't get something I want. But any time I think that it's any more complicated than that, I'm confused. And I want to thank the host committee and thank all of you for your patience. Thank you.